It's the tune to how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, which is a great hymn. While we're turning to the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 2, if you're using a church Bible, you should find this on page 1029. 1029. And uh, if you've been tracking with our evening services and our studies in the book of Proverbs, uh, you will immediately note the connection uh, between the book of Proverbs and this section that tells us about the Lord Jesus and uh, what presumably was His second visit to the temple. He was taken there uh, probably when he was less than two months old uh, for a service related to his mother, and it looks as though this was the first time uh, that he returned. So, Luke chapter 2, and beginning to read at verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, This is such a familiar passage um, that you'll remember when Luke begins his gospel, uh, which he has written, remember Luke only comes into the apostolic band of evangelists in the middle of the Acts of the Apostles, so Luke was not one of the original disciples. So his gospel, in distinction from the other three, is what you might call a researched gospel. And he tells us that at the very beginning, that he has, he's done very careful research. So, if you reflect on this passage and ask the question, how did he learn what's in this passage? There is almost certainly only one ultimate answer, that either directly or indirectly, he learned this from Mary. I think we can fairly safely assume that Joseph was dead by the end of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Almost certainly the person from whom Luke either directly or indirectly learned this information was Mary. And so what I want to do is to transpose this into the first person singular in the expectation that this will give us a sense of listening to Mary. So, you'll not find this in the church Bible, but you'll find almost all the words. It's just a simple transposition. Joseph and I went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So, when Jesus was 12 years old, we all went up together according to custom. Then, when the feast was over, as we were returning, Jesus, He was just a boy, stayed behind in Jerusalem. We had no idea, but assumed He was with the group. We'd already gone a day's journey before we began to search for Him among our relatives and friends, and not finding Him, we went back to Jerusalem looking for Him. So, it was three days after the feast ended by the time that we found him. He was in the temple, sitting among the teachers, 
listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and the answers he gave to questions. And when we saw him, we were amazed. I said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Don't you see your father and I have been searching for you and have been very upset? But he replied, why were you searching for me? You surely knew that I had to be in my father's house. We didn't really understand a word of what he said to us. But he came down with us back to Nazareth, and he was always submissive to us as his mom and dad. And I kept thinking about what had happened over and over again. Meanwhile, Jesus kept growing, growing in wisdom and growing physically, and he was also growing in favor with God and man. Now, imagine if you were brought up in Sunday school, and I assume most of the gray heads in this congregation were brought up in Sunday school and not a few of the others. This would be one of the most familiar passages in the whole of the Gospels to you. And maybe some well-meaning but perhaps not well-understanding Sunday school teacher dinned into you, Jesus obeyed his parents and you should obey his parents too which is not really the point of this passage. And my guess is that because this passage is so familiar to us, it's so preliminary to the whole story of the gospel that that we feel we have been there and we have done that, and it perhaps doesn't strike us that this is actually one of the most important passages in the whole of the New Testament. It's one of the most important passages in Luke's gospel to help us get a, get a grasp on who Jesus really is. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because there are elements in this passage that make us feel, how, how do I fit this into my view of Jesus? And as soon as we've asked that question, we should have the answer. We're not supposed to be fitting this into our view of Jesus, We're supposed to be fitting our view of Jesus into this. And so, in a sense, one of the really significant things for us about reading this passage is, do we have the right answer to this question? Does the Jesus I know, does the Jesus I trust in, is He a Jesus who grew in wisdom? so that he was wiser when he was 15 than he was when he was 12, and wiser when he was 30 than he was when he was 15. And is my Jesus, I don't mean Depeche Mode's, your own personal Jesus. God will explain to you who Depeche Mode either are or were. Does my Jesus Did my Jesus grow in favor with God? Did my Jesus grow in favor with God? And my guess is for many Christians, 
Um, and I can see this on some of your faces. The, the question immediately arises, how do I fit that into my view of Jesus? And that's why I'm saying at the very beginning, uh, you need to turn your thinking around. And you need to understand that your view of Jesus needs to fit into this. And we might think of this passage in a way as, as a kind of commentary by Mary on a kind of first volume of the photograph album of Jesus' life. Um, and of course, Luke is a particularly vivid gospel full of pictures. And there are actually several photographs here, but I want us to look at two of them in particular. Now, you understand the context. Uh, Jesus is 12. At 13, in a sense, Jesus enters into a, a season of new responsibility in the Jewish culture in which he lived. He still remains a young man. He would remain a young man until he was 30. But they, he's, he's moved up a stage in terms of responsibility in the religious community. Uh, we might say that Jesus is at a transition point in the Jewish community when he becomes a, he becomes a full member of the church or of, in his case, the covenant community in the synagogue. And as part of the preparation for this, it looks as though uh, Joseph and Mary, who interestingly both go up to the Passover, although only the men were actually required to do it, they go up to the Passover in Jerusalem. And this is the point at which Jesus is taken with them. Uh, pretty good that uh, he was now 12 because it was an 80-mile walk. It was a three- to four-day journey. And this is the first time Jesus can remember being in Jerusalem. He's been in Jerusalem before. Earlier on in the chapter, we know he was taken there when he was somewhere between one and two months old, but, but this is the first time. And so, we've got to imagine what this meant for Jesus. He'd, he'd known about Jerusalem as long as he'd known about anything. Um, I'd played golf most of my life, watched the Masters on television, but I still remember the sense of kind of excitement and thrill when the first time I walked through the gates and beheld this horticultural wonder out of which grown men and millionaires would great, take great chunks of grass which would then quickly be covered over with green seed matching everything else. It was, it was an awesome experience, even for a Scot. So, what must it have been like for Jesus when He, when he gets to that point in the journey when uh, Jerusalem, that great city celebrated in the Psalms so often, holy Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of God, the place where the temple stands, where God has promised to be present, where the tribes go up and meet. So, this is a, this is a very special gift to Jesus that Mary and Joseph are giving to Him. And uh, they start on the way home at the end of the feast and at the end of the first 20 miles. Uh, one of them says to the other, 
where's Jesus? And it's, it's really a completely ordinary human situation. They've lost, they've lost their son. Now, your head crowds all kinds of questions, doesn't it? How on earth could they possibly lose his son? Luke has no interest in answering that question. We have no idea. Except perhaps to say this, the whole villages went together. And this was not 2018. This was, this was around 10 AD. And about 100,000 people were leaving Jerusalem. This was, this, was like, uh, this was like the Melbourne cricket ground emptying these vast numbers, and hundreds of them have come from the same village, and I think it's safe to assume that Mary and Joseph, who knows what passed between them, husband and wife, I thought you were looking after him. No, I thought you were looking after him. I thought he was with the other boys. And it's clear in some sense of panic, which if you've ever lost one of your children in a crowd, you will have every sympathy with. It's clear that in a state of panic, they take another day to get back to Jerusalem. And then on the third day, eventually, they find uh, Jesus. And Jesus hears these words that some of you, probably more the boys than the girls, remember made you shudder. Your father and I you know, did you have a mother who, when she, you know, who, who would be the one who would do the rowing of you, but uh, if it was a real row, then dad would be called in as, you know, your pocket money's threatened, your father and I. So it's a, it places Jesus in a, in a very ordinary human situation anchored into our lives. And one of the things Luke is telling us is, dear ones, he really was incarnate among us. God didn't spare his own son, says Luke's friend, the Apostle Paul. And that, in a sense, is especially true in the cross, but it was true throughout the whole course of his life. He didn't spare him the, the angst of his parents losing him, and the irritation of his mother, the frustration of his mother. Don't you realize how upset your father and I have been? The misunderstanding by his parents. This is the, this is the loving home, and clearly it was a loving home, but by no means a perfect home, into which the Lord Jesus came. But then, two photographs. The first is, you can almost imagine Mary pointing to the photograph, if there had been photographs. We took a photograph of him on our primitive cell phone because we were so amazed. We couldn't believe it when we saw what he was doing. He was sitting there in the temple among the teachers, and I couldn't hold my tongue. I just blurted out. Have you no idea what you've been doing to us, son? But now that I look at the photograph again, 
I, I look at the photograph now with, with different eyes. Of course, if Luke actually did get this directly from Mary, Jesus had lived, he died, he had risen again, he had ascended into heaven. The whole story is known. And you can almost imagine Mary saying, you know, if I'd known then what I know now, I would have looked at this with different eyes. I do look at this now with different eyes. And you see what Luke tells us Jesus was doing. It's so interesting. And here notice that Luke is actually picking up something he said in verse 40. The child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom. And you can see now Luke has, Luke has given us this story to help us answer the question that we're bound to ask when we read that. How did he get filled with wisdom? How did Jesus get filled with wisdom? Answer, exactly the same way you will get filled with wisdom. Do I need to say that again? How did Jesus get filled with wisdom? He didn't get filled with wisdom by being God. He was already filled with wisdom because He was God. So, Luke is not talking here about His divine nature. He's talking here about His humanity, about Jesus growing up, and the way in which Jesus was filled with wisdom is exactly the way you and I, and may I add in parenthesis, our children. Our children. And in another parenthesis, I'll not go too far on this, Luke has a particular interest in children in his gospel. This is how our children will be filled with wisdom. So what was happening? Well, look at the verbs that Luke uses. Jesus was listening. Jesus was asking questions. Jesus was understanding, and Jesus was answering the questions He was asked. Now, what does that remind you of? Um, it probably should remind you of family devotions, if you're a family with family devotions. It reminds you of Sunday school. I mean, this is a wonderful thing for us, especially those of us who are parents, to grasp that Jesus, Jesus is our Savior and He is our example, but He's not only narrowly our example in terms of, so what would Jesus do? But He's our example in how did Jesus grow and how are our children going to grow? Yes, he's fulfilling a, a particular biblical prophecy of Isaiah 11.2, that the Messiah would be filled with wisdom, but Luke is explaining to us how he was filled with wisdom. Remember how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119, round about verse 100? Because I've taken in your word, I've more wisdom than my enemies. I've even more wisdom than my teachers. And this is a thrilling thing to know. This is not something that is, as it were, exclusive to Jesus because He is the Son of God. 
This is the experience of Jesus because He's come into our frail human flesh, and He's lived a life from the size of an embryo in the womb until now He's a 12-year-old boy, and He's gaining wisdom the same way any of us would gain wisdom, by learning it from God's Word. You know, this is hugely important in our contemporary world, isn't it? Um, Ours is a contemporary world where we refuse to do this for children. Uh, Actually, this used to be built into Scottish society. But now we refuse to do this for children. And it's really, a, it's really a lesson for those of us who are Christians to have, the, to have the stability to understand that if this is the way the Lord Jesus gained wisdom, our rascal children are not going to gain wisdom in any other way than by listening and learning and understanding and asking questions and having their questions answered and Himself answering, herself answering the questions we are asked. You know, in the history of, of the church in Scotland, there, there is like a stunning illustration of this. Um, do you know the name of the man who was responsible for training more church planters in the last 500 years than anyone else. It's David Robertson's favorite theologian. Surprise, surprise. John Calvin. He trained hundreds of church planters. One of the church planters he trained was a man whose name you may be familiar with, John Knox. What John Knox did when he came back to Scotland, 1560, which was the year of the Reformation in Scotland, he did what, you know, I don't know what your view of John Knox is. You know, I mean, it may stun you to think that John Knox was passionately concerned about children, or that John Calvin was passionately concerned about children. Of course they were. They were gospel ministers. So, what did Knox do? Moi, if I were planting a church, I would use the Knox method. It solves so many problems. Once the morning service is finished, the congregation goes into reverse. And instead of the children sitting with us in adult worship, we sit with the children in children's worship. So nobody leaves, absolutely nobody leaves. And what happens? Knox says, everybody's to be there. Everybody's to be there. And what happens? The children, they have a catechism service, a little teaching, a little questioning, a little answering, a little explanation, a little more questioning. And they, they worked through Calvin's catechism. Now, some of the questions in Calvin's catechism were long, so long that in one case, the child's answer is, it's exactly what you say, which shows he really cared about children. And you see, you see, you see the, what seems to be the genius of this? One, 
the best teachers in the church are teaching our children. Two, this is so interesting, the parents are hearing what the children are being taught. Three, if it really is the best teachers, then the parents are learning how to teach their children. And since they walked to church in those days and didn't come in their camper vans, like some of you, they had something to talk about on the way home. And it worked. So isn't it, isn't it amazing the extent to which even the Christian church in our own day has been taken in by the deception of the world that these things are of no interest to children. You can't teach them to children. They'll never understand them. And actually what it really means is we don't want to talk to our children about these things. Mommy, who, where did God come from? It's none of your business. Don't talk about that. I think I've told the Sunday evening congregation before of a, a memorable evening I had with a young couple in our church in Glasgow and the, the girl had started a Bible club in her local primary school because she was burdened for it, and the uh, principal teacher was just glad to have any help for these kids that anyone would offer. And she said to me one day, you know, they're asking me questions that I think are quite difficult. These were like eight-year-olds, not from Christian homes. She said, will you come along some night? They cleared out all the furniture in their sitting room. And I sat there with a, a couple of dozen ragamuffin children, not from uh, the better part of Glasgow. And I answered their questions, or tried to, and I was so impressed by what happened. This was years and years ago. That later on, I, I just wrote down the questions they asked to make sure I remembered them. How can God be everywhere at one and the same time? That's a nine-year-old. How can God be in three parts? Why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God take lives away when they're so young? Why are there so many poor people? Why do we all have different colors of skin? How can God hear all of our prayers at the same time? If God knows everything, why do we pray at all? How does God decide how to give us what we ask for? Why do some people believe in God and others don't? How can I be sure God loves me? Nine years old. How can I? Of course nine years old. Beloved, they're human beings. How can I be sure I'm going to heaven? Why do we still do bad things once we become Christians? These are eight and nine-year-olds. Now, where do you get the answer to these questions? Oh, you know where. So, in a sense, what Luke is doing for us here is saying, won't, won't you do for your children as a church what was done for Jesus in, in home and family? I'm not for a moment suggesting we reinvent church, but you see the, the privileged responsibility this lays upon us that very near the beginning of Luke's gospel, he holds this up as though to say, this was how your Savior became the man he became. Not by any extraordinary advantages and privileges that other children could not possibly have, 
that he grew in wisdom the same way we will grow in wisdom by learning it. And it's day by day. It's week by week. It's year by year. It's decade by decade. And I want you to see what this produced in Jesus. Um, Because Mary especially was clearly irritated by the whole situation. And he is this, this, I mean, here, here's the wisdom that Luke has spoken about earlier coming out. He has the wisdom to respond in this way. You didn't, you didn't need to be searching for me. I think that's where the emphasis has got to be if you're reading that. Why are you searching for me? You really should have known. Or actually, the way it's phrased is, it's actually, it's more gracious than that. Whatever Jesus may have said in Aramaic, Luke has a wonderful way of expressing it. He says, you, you did know where I'd be, didn't you? And this is 12. This is the wisdom of a 12-year-old because he's imbibed the truth of God's Word. It's in his mind. It's in his heart. And uh, I think partly implied by that is an Mom and Dad, this, I'm just doing what you taught me to do. Aren't you the ones who taught me that God says, seek my face? Come into the temple and seek my face. And Mom and Dad, there's something else. Surely you knew this. That if you lost me, I would be in the one place I was sure you would look for me. Isn't that beautiful? It's like, you haven't been looking anywhere else for me, have you? And then there is this very special note that obviously for Joseph and Mary, it it must have made them puzzle over the supernatural way in which Jesus had been conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And what they'd been told by supernatural agents. It was the way he described the temple. My father's house. Now, Jews didn't speak that way. Jews actually didn't speak about God as our father. You can search through the Old Testament, you will not find Old Testament believers speaking about God as our heavenly father. So this is an astounding claim that Jesus is making to his own deity when he is but a 12-year-old boy. And then quickly turn over the photograph album and it's as though Mary is saying, and and, uh, so we all went home and and there he is. And uh, look at where he was. They had no idea why he was talking about verse 50. But he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to them. These parents who, and almost for the rest of his days, they struggle with it. They don't understand him. But what beauty God's Word has put into his life, that he's submissive to them. 
And then this marvelous statement that Jesus increased in wisdom. He, he grew more and more in wisdom. And you can see that, you can actually see all of this coming out in Jesus' engagement with people in the three years of his public ministry. His extraordinary ability to ask questions, which I think is of tremendous importance to us today. When sometimes we are bombarded with antagonistic questions. And if you read through Luke's gospel, you'll notice how there are occasions when Jesus refrains from answering questions. And occasions when Jesus answers questions with questions of his own. Where did he get that from? That's the wisdom that he gained from his knowledge of Scripture. It made him wiser than his teachers, and it made him wiser than his enemies. And that's the reason why uh, Luke goes on to tell us that he not only increased in wisdom and physically, he physically grew between 12 and 30, the way you physically grew between 12 and 30. And he grew in favor with man. Even with men who hated him, they could not but respect him, which was the reason they attacked him so much. But in a way, the really breathtaking thing is that he grew in favor with God all his life. So how do I fit that into my view of Jesus? You don't. You fit your view of Jesus into this. Because this, perhaps of all the statements that's made in Luke's gospel about Jesus, this is the statement that really underlines that he didn't pretend to take on our human nature. He really did. And in that human nature, as he grew in the way in which he experienced more and more tests, more and more opposition in loving obedience to his heavenly Father, his heavenly Father responded in exactly the same way you would respond if you were a father of a child who grew in his or her ability in any sphere. Some of you go to watch your children play football or hockey or, or netball or whatever it is, and you know when they dribble past three of their school friends and uh, have a, a tremendous throw and uh, their team wins. Now, you're not like the other parents. <laughs> but you are standing there saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. I, I would have loved her if she had failed because I love her. But I see how hard she's worked. I see how she's taken the gifts God has given her and she's, she's disciplined herself to use them. And so, I can't explain this. But I love her even more because of what she's becoming. Until eventually this obedience of Jesus that we get a little glimpse of in Luke chapter 2 comes to its full flourishing and his obedience to his Father even to death. Philippians 2. 
he became obedient even to death. At which point, as I sometimes say, we might imagine the Heavenly Father singing the hymn, My Jesus, I love you. I know you are mine. If ever I loved you, my Jesus, tis now. And it's here from the time he was 12. It was there before he was 12. But it's here from the time he was 12 that he's growing in favor. You know that's the single most important thing that you need to see as the vision of your life. That in everything you do, you're growing in favor with him. Because there is nothing more wonderfully blessed than to be like your Savior in this respect. And although this is Jesus at 12, isn't it, isn't it true that if you trust and love Jesus, you want to know what he was like when he was 12? Because it helps you to love him more and helps you to understand what he became in order to be your Savior. I hope you do trust him. And I hope you love him more. And because you love him more, you'll love your children more. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the riches of your word for the grace of it and for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes and he became a 12-year-old for us. We think of our 12-year-olds and think Jesus became a 12-year-old for them just as he became a 9-year-old for our 9-year-olds and a full-grown human being for all of us. Oh, help us to Help us to know who He really is, to know that he really, he really did become incarnate in our flesh, and that Your Holy Spirit has been sent to us by Him in order to reproduce in us and in our families what was first produced in Jesus and His family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.